0: Without a doubt, the most important group of folks in the cannabis scene are the cannabis patients. Of course, I am happy for everyone to have better access to cannabis, but for me, helping defend patient access to clean and legal cannabis and making sure they are educated in how to use it is my driving force. Even though I'm not a doctor, because I interview so many doctors and I bother to read the scientific papers that come out about cannabis medicine, lots of folks approach me at cannabis conventions, at the grocery, or even on the ferry back home to Vashon Island to ask for suggestions in relieving their symptoms of this or that. In most cases, I have read something or done an interview on a particular topic and have something helpful to say. Some topics I'm particularly deep on, and I'll teach those to small groups. One of the most asked-about topics is Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's has become incredibly common, and there are a lot of good people getting bad information about how best to use cannabis for Parkinson's relief. Today we're going to fix that. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter, so go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered in this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. We have an extra giveaway this episode because we are moving into home gardening season. Our friends at Dynamico asked me to help them give away several hundred retail sized bags of their endomycorrhizal inoculant. You'll hear more about their great product during the first commercial break, but for now, I just want to give you the URL of dynomyco.com forward slash shapingfire. That is a link to a page on their website where they are collecting addresses to mail out these samples for absolutely free. They have committed to sending out at least 300 packages to the Shaping Fire audience. This is a very popular soil starter, so do not delay in filling out the form at dynomyco.com forward slash shapingfire. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lowe. Today, my guest is cannabis researcher and educator Zoe Sigmund. Zoe travels the U.S. teaching groups and writing articles on cannabinopathic medicine. She is the former program director at ProjectCBD.org and is presently science editor at Broccoli Magazine. She has built out educational content focusing on scientific information about cannabis for organizations like pharma and groundworks industries, Oregon Health and Sciences University, and Hudson Hemp. Sigmund has also testified about CBD and cannabis regulation to the FDA, and regularly speaks about cannabis and cannabis science to patients, medical professionals, and consumers. Today we're gonna talk all about Parkinson's disease. The first set explains what Parkinson's is, the second set explains how cannabis works in the human body to relieve Parkinson's, and the last set is about proper dosing protocols and best practices for using cannabis in real life applications. Our goal is to provide actionable information for Parkinson's patients and those who love them. Welcome to the show, Zoe.
1: Hey, Shango, how are you
0: doing great? Thank you so much for giving us some of your valuable time. I know you're on the road and I appreciate you being with us.
1: Ah, uh, thank you so much for having me on.
0: So Parkinson's disease and a handful of similar afflictions are s- often put in a basket together because they share many of the same causes and symptoms. so so let's start there to make sure that we're all on the same page about what we're going to be talking about today. One of the most prevalent visible symptoms of advanced Parkinson's disease is the vi- is the tremors, um, mm-hmm. usually starting in one hand and then and then unfortunately, spreading from there. What are some of the signs of Parkinson's that people commonly um, become aware of first?
1: Yeah, I mean, the tremor really is the first sort of noticeable physical sign of Parkinson's. Um, unfortunately, at that point, the disease is pretty far progressed. Um really early signs that I have come across are constipation and a loss of smell. So they're very subtle symptoms early on. So it really is sort of when the tremors start that people start to think, oh, maybe this is Parkinson's disease.
0: That's interesting. I had not heard about the, the loss of sense of smell. Um, mm-hmm. and and you know, for a lot of people I, I think that they go, Oh, you know, maybe that's a stuffed nose or maybe it's allergies or something.
1: Or age, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, um, and and as we know, by the time the tremors have arrived, you're all you've already lost so many uh, dopamine uh, creating uh, brain cells that yeah. that we're we're already far down the path. So um, yeah, at
1: that point, it's you've lost sixty percent of the dopamine dopamine producing neurons. So it's. It's a lot
0: yeah it is a lot and and usually by the time people get to cannabis they are they have already you know parkinson's is already part of their life they've already been going to doctors for it um they've been they've got a diagnosis and they are they are weighing treatment at this point mm-hmm. and um but I don't I don't want to give symptoms short shrift because we're going to be talking about the symptoms a lot more later on when we're going to be talking about how cannabis can help uh, relieve some of those symptoms. So so why don't we do a little more of a review of what those symptoms are like and let let's let's talk about them in two categories. Would you first talk about the the early maybe less recognizable symptoms like um, a sense of smell and then and then and then talk a bit more about um, the the ones that were more familiar with like the shuffling of the feet and and, and, and uh, bending over a little bit and it's totally. just for people who maybe are not the Parkinson's patient themselves who are listening but maybe have a loved one um, let's 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 dig into that a bit
1: so some of the early symptoms, and these are also secondary symptoms later in the disease progression, are um, digestive issues. So not just constipation, but oftentimes like nausea or loss of appetite. Um, mood disorders are also common. Anxiety and depression. This is both, it could be an early symptom. It's also where adults uh, And people who are getting older often have a little bit more anxiety about getting older. And so, again, it's not like a concrete way to determine whether or not you have Parkinson's Um, pain, sleeping issues. These are all things that can be indicative of Parkinson's disease early on. But they're also just common ailments as we age with other conditions. So it's difficult to say if they're directly connected to Parkinson's, but they are common in people with Parkinson's disease. As the disease progresses into the motor symptoms, you, of course, get the tremors. Um, There's something called bradykinesia, which is a slowed movement. So it's this inability to consciously move quickly. Uh, There's rigid muscles, impaired posture, loss of the ability to control your movements completely. And so it's like you have muscle spasticity, you have tremors, all of these like different involuntary movements are in slightly different categories, but they are, they can look pretty similar to people who are not experiencing them.
0: And that's one of the challenges, right? Because like one of the things that, everyone recommends for Parkinson's is to start treating early. Mm -hmm. But so many of the early symptoms could be so many different things, you know, swallowing problems and chewing and eating problems and sleeping problems and, you know, um, uh, uh, constipation. So many different things can be causing these, including like other medications that you may be on, because all this stuff is is Mm -hmm. side effects from other pharmaceuticals. And More often than not, the patients that I have uh, worked with, it is when the tremors start to arrive and, and you really have the difficulty with motor function, uh, tremors, the slight uh, hunching over the shuffling of the feet because you mm-hmm. can't get in a good step. It's, it's somewhere in there that either they or their spouse or a good friend points out, hey, do you know that you're, that you're doing this? And that's when people start going, oh, man, maybe this, maybe this isn't just something from the pharmaceuticals. Maybe this as a package is, is, is something more serious.
1: Right, right. And that's a really hard realization for a lot of people. And, you know, it's sort of at that point, you can go in and the doctor can test for some, like biomarkers of the disease. But if you're already, if you're already there, it's sort of like, okay, here we go.
0: Yeah. So, all right. So, so let's talk about um, more the, the underlying what Parkinson's is. And I know, I know that it gets gray real fast because, real fast. Uh, yeah, real fast because, you know, we don't, we don't really know. Um, however, um, it is common to be around, you know, with Parkinson's groups and have people say that it's, it's difficult for them to figure out sometimes, uh, which of their symptoms, are causing the Parkinson's and which of their symptoms are coming from the Parkinson's. Mm. And, and I often offer a delineation to patients that it is not really as effective to try to determine which is causing which it's, it's almost like these things are a package that start to show up at the same time. And, and, and the same attributes that, that, we use to diagnose Parkinson's also cause these other symptoms. And mm-hmm. it's very often difficult to figure out, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Which came first, the symptoms or the Parkinson's? So right. so will you kind of get to the heart of the matter and let us have a better understanding of what the state of the science is about what Parkinson's is and its cause to the best that we know? And so that we can start teasing out symptoms from cause.
1: Totally. Um, So, I mean, you are right to say that it gets gray really quickly. So there's a couple of underlying causes for Parkinson's disease disease neurologically. So it's characterized by the loss of neurons that produce dopamine in a particular part of the brain, and therefore a loss of dopamine um, in other parts of the brain later on. It's also marked by an accumulation of these protein clusters called Lewy bodies. Now, that really is sort of like a dead end. There's not a lot about Lewy bodies out there. It's just sort of like, here's a biomarker of Parkinson's disease. If you see an accumulation of this kind of protein, this is associated with this disease. For the most part, people and researchers are focused on the dopamine aspect of the disease, the loss of dopamine, how to prevent the loss of the neurons that pre- produce dopamine, how to preserve dopamine that's hanging out in your brain. Um, And other than that, the pathophysiology is uh, very gray. We don't really know what factors play into the development of Parkinson's disease. It could be genetic. It could be environmental. Um, We know that there are a couple of symptoms neurologically that are associated with Parkinson's, but only Parkinson's. What you were talking about earlier, where Parkinson's disease is uh, included in a lot of other neurodegenerative diseases, those diseases are often associated with um, neuroinflammation, oxidative stress, uh, excitotoxicity, calcium channel dysregulation, a bunch of things in the brain that Show that something is not functioning properly, and so Parkinson's exhibits all of those things as well.
0: And so that actually brings us back to this idea that that Parkinson's and its kind of related ailments, you know, uh, you know, mm. parkinsonian syndrome, and you know, the, the things that are all kind of often put in this basket they're very often diagnosed by symptoms instead mm-hmm. of what's going on in the body which which is always strange right when you, like other diseases like like lupus is another one of those right they're oh, like wow, they're yeah. like like wow we don't know what it is but if you've got this basket of symptoms we're going to we're going to call it lupus so that we can talk about it right and but but to distill what you just said down to what i think is the essential kernel the essential kernel seems to be that that for the for the for our conversation today parkinson's is the the loss of neurons that caught that that um create dopamine and it is the lack of the dopamine in the dopamine serotonin cycle that starts to cause the the more serious aspects that we are more familiar with 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 uh you know motor and mobility skills Yeah. all right exactly so Oddly enough, when we in during next set when we start talking more about um how cannabis acts on parkinsons explaining to patients that that in essence the this bigger picture that is threatening their life it comes down to these these dopamine creating neurons mm-hmm. in my experience patients feel a certain amount of I don't know, um, they're glad for the clarity of purpose, right? Cause, because Parkinson's is kind of this this big amorphous thing that, that there are many opinions on. But when you bring it down to this one thing that, that you're losing these neurons and that's what is inhibiting your life, patients tend to give me the you know they get this look of this like an aha moment and they're like Mm -hmm. oh now i can now i can kind of focus on understanding this because i've named my monster and i know what it is
1: right yeah and in those terms it can be much easier for someone to approach it to because you know most of us have heard of dopamine and so if you say hey this is what's going on people have something to grab onto and then you know Oftentimes I have found people who have chronic illnesses like Parkinson's disease become huge nerds about their own condition. And so it's just, it's an incredibly useful tool to say like, Hey, here's one of the causes. This is what we think is one of the causes of Parkinson's disease.
0: So um, if we're using Parkinson's disease as the primary cause, uh, let's say the flagship ailment in this basket. Um, mm-hmm. Can you elucidate a little bit what the other ailments in this basket might be? Like I've already mentioned Parkinsonian syndrome, but honestly, that's the only yeah. one I, other one I know.
1: They're often, I mean, Parkinson's disease research is often done in conjunction or sort of lumped together with things like Huntington's disease or multiple sclerosis or Alzheimer's disease. So they they all have different pathophysiologies. They're all you can definitely tell in the body and the brain that these are different conditions. But as far as treatment and the underlying causes, they're often discussed in the same sort of way. There's specific research in each of those areas of course, but Especially when you get into how cannabis interacts with these diseases, it's they're frequently presented together.
0: So I know that you are very hardcore about uh, keeping up on uh, the up-to-the-date research on 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 a, on, a, on a wide range of diseases that you're very focused on.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Is there a lot of research going on with Parkinson's and cannabis right now? I mean, clearly there's more science going on now with cannabis than there there has been ever in in human experience before. Um, But still, technically, since cannabis is a Schedule I drug and illegal at the federal level, it's difficult to get cannabis. uh, cannabis studies approved at all. And so clearly there's yeah. Parkinson's research going on. But how about Parkinson's and cannabis research?
1: Yeah, actually I'm pretty impressed with the amount of cannabis research that focuses on Parkinson's disease and it largely focuses on CBD and I think that as CBD has become more and more legal researchers are really latching onto it as a compound that could be beneficial for a number of diseases including parkinson's that said um the evidence that cannabis could be useful for parkinson's has been around for a really long time (laughs) like since the late 19th century before parkinson's disease parkinson's disease was called parkinson's disease there was evidence that cannabis at that point cannabis indica uh could help relieve some of the spasticity and shaking of the condition that is now known as Parkinson's disease. And so there are older pieces of research that focus on cannabis without being specific about the cannabinoid content or THC. There's also evidence coming out about endocannabinoids, um, minor cannabinoids, like THCV, CBG, uh, all of these things are areas that researchers are starting to look at in from the perspective of Parkinson's. And I think it is because Parkinson's is one of the most common neurodegenerative diseases in our older population. Um, and so there's a. In addition to that, there isn't really a good treatment for it. There's, there aren't medications at this point that slow the progression of Parkinson's disease. There are, there is really one or a very small handful of medications that can treat the symptoms, but the disease will continue to progress. Um, and so researchers are really dead set on trying to find compounds that can slow the progression. And I think that that's why there's been so much interest in cannabis and cannabinoids,
0: yeah, absolutely. And you know it's interesting that you mentioned uh, that that cannabis, Has been used for Parkinson's before it was recognized as Parkinson's, you know, going back a hundred years because. You know, when you you see these old antique bottles of cannabis, you're reminded that, you know, historically cannabis has been, you know, some 70 percent of the pharmacopoeia of of what we humans used for everything. Right. And uh, and the idea, you know, the, the fact that cannabis being taboo is only really something of the last, you know, 70 years or so. And though I must admit, there is uh, it is crazy to see some of the concoctions that are in these bottles. You know they'll oh they'll, my god <laughs> they'll, you know, you'll, they'll throw you know cannabis and morphine and cocaine in the same bottle, and they'll say this and is alcohol. medicine and alcohol, yeah, totally. right? <laughs> and you're like, oh, you know that that will definitely cure what ails you. So, but this brings us up to where we where we are, right? And I'm sure most folks are are, are most curious about um, how can they actually use cannabis to treat their park and maybe roll back its progression and we're going to start that in a moment uh, for the second set Uh, so let's go ahead and take our first short break and be right back you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is cannabis researcher and educator zoe sigman one of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the US at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynamico is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynamico by its original name, Dynamic. Now, Dynamico is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable, growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynamico at dynomyco.com and find out where you can get yours. That's d-y-n-o-m-y-c-o dot com. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential dynamico endomycorrhizal inoculant did you know that shaping fire has a fabulous youtube channel with content not found on the podcast when i attend conventions or speak or moderate panels i always record them and bring the content home for you to watch the shango los youtube channel has world-class speakers including kevin jodri of wonderland nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash Shangolos or click on the link in this week's newsletter. This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers, too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamea cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up, smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Gen X last year here on Vashon Island and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs and breeders had seven out of seven females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines, along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis researcher and educator Zoe Sigmund. So cannabis is a long history of being used not only to relieve the symptoms of Parkinson's, but also rolling it back because of the cannabis plant's ability to cause neurogenesis, the creation of new brain cells that produce dopamine. So before we talk about how cannabis can help in the short term with symptoms abatement, How about we start with your explanation of how cannabis can help combat Parkinson's long term by revitalizing the endocannabinoid system and making more of these neurons that are so important?
1: Totally. And there's a couple of parts to that question. So as far as cannabis and neurogenesis, this is an area that is of great interest to researchers. Um, We start seeing how neurodegeneration is can be caused by things like neuroinflammation, oxidative stress. So these are like basically little compounds that float around wreaking havoc. And cannabinoids have been shown to combat those underlying causes of neurodegeneration. And so by being anti-inflammatory, by being an antioxidant, cannabinoids are able to help preserve your brain's ability to create new neurons, which is incredibly important as we grow and change. It's not like our brains suddenly completely stop creating new neurons. It's part of being alive. Um, but in people with Parkinson's disease, you see that neurogenesis take a nosedive. And so if you can do anything to prevent the underlying causes of neuro degeneration, you're doing something good. And so there've been all these individual studies in rodents and in cell cultures that show that THC and CBD and CBG can help retain neuronal health in a number of ways. So this is both preserving or protecting from oxidative oxidative factors and also preserving things like synaptic plasticity. Cells have life cycles Um, It's really important that they complete the entire life cycle and Parkinson's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases interrupt that life cycle in one way or another. And cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system are responsible for regulating those life cycles. And so manipulating the endocannabinoid system can help reestablish or preserve some of the ability for cells to have a more normal life cycle. Um, the endocannabinoid system is a promising therapeutic target in a number of ways for Parkinson's disease that has to do with its relationship to the dopaminergic system. So the system that produces dopamine, and this is sort of like a cutting edge of research. That's super interesting. It seems like anandamide, which is one of the cannabinoids that our bodies produce an endocannabinoid, is vital in the cycle of creating dopamine. And it's integral in healthy adults. And then in Parkinson's, people who have Parkinson's disease, we see a number of impacts on the endocannabinoid system depending on the stage of the disease. Um, So in people who are sort of pre-symptomatic before they have the motor issues associated with Parkinson's disease, we see a depression of the endocannabinoid system. So these are lower levels of endocannabinoids and endocannabinoid receptors, which makes researchers think like, huh, something is going on. Potentially, like this system could be a target for therapy. And then as the disease progresses to the intermediate and advanced stages, start to see those motor symptoms, you get an overexpression of endocannabinoids and endocannabinoid receptors. And the thought is it could be a compensatory reaction. Something has happened in the early stages of the disease that causes the endocannabinoid system to underexpress, which allows things like oxidative factors and inflammatory factors to proliferate in the brain. And that makes the disease progress more quickly. And then as it progresses, the endocannabinoid system sort of like snaps back up and starts overexpressing all of these things, which is actually kind of good because um, anandamide has been, it's been shown that when you do things chemically that, that make anandamide stay around longer, you're also making dopamine stay around longer. And so you kind of want more anandamide, hanging out. So you're preserving whatever dopamine your brain is still producing if you're a Parkinson's patient. So it gets a little technical, um, but yeah, it's there's there are many reasons why the endocannabinoid system is a target for therapeutic promise in Parkinson's. Um, cannabis and the endocannabinoid system are obviously deeply interrelated. Um, and what's interesting is In a lot of therapeutic settings and in Parkinson's disease, there's evidence basically suggesting like the endocannabinoid system is much larger than we currently accept it as being. So most people will characterize the endocannabinoid system as consisting of these two receptors, CB1 and CB2, the endocannabinoids our bodies produce and the enzymes that synthesize and break down those endocannabinoids. But we see that plant cannabinoids, and endocannabinoids interact with a bunch of different receptors in our body. And these receptors could be very important in helping to mitigate some of the effects of Parkinson's disease. And some of them are orphan receptors. Um, Recently, actually very recently, CBD was sort of in the Parkinsonian research news as being beneficial because it interacted with an orphan receptor receptor called GPR6. And it was an inverse agonist, which means it makes the receptor do the opposite of what it usually does, which is good because activating the receptor causes an increase in Parkinsonian symptoms and CBD, by making it do the opposite, caused a decrease in those symptoms. And so you start to see like very specifically, like all of the effects that different cannabinoids could have on all these different receptors that could be beneficial or not beneficial for... Um, parkinson's disease
0: all right, so let's unpack a little bit of this because um uh, it. <laughs> it, it, it is it is complicated um, but your 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 explanation is is on point, but I also know that that when i when I publish episodes that are about specific diseases or ailments, we attract um, new listeners who have come just for this one episode, right? And so first thing I want to do is I want to address the endocannabinoid system. And the, and the way that I usually explain it to non-cannabis crowds it's is that the endocannabinoid system um, is what keeps the human body in homeostasis. It keeps everything in balance. It's, it's kind of like the second grade teacher in a classroom. And when the second grade teacher is in the classroom, the kids are generally, well, behaved And doing what they're supposed to do. But as the teacher goes outside of the room into the hallway, eventually one kid's going to crack up and then another kid's going to crack up and then, and then different kids crack up first. And then eventually, though, you know, it's, it's chaotic. And, and that's Mm -hmm. kind of what happens with the endocannabinoid system as well, where the endocannabinoid system, once it becomes weakened, um, uh, uh perhaps uh this particular uh, uh uh body system starts working less well and then another one produ- is is less well and so then we start getting um oxidation or or um or inflammation because our body is not doing its its general house cleaning that keeps the body in homeostasis and so since these cannabinoids that we're talking about which which naturally occur inside the human body as endogenous cannabinoids, meaning produced inside the body, we turn to cannabis for phytocannabinoids because we can get them from a plant and they do the same thing which is signal, right? These these cannabinoids are being used to signal to turn switches on and off um, in different parts of the body, which is essentially doing this homeostasis work. So, So if we have a dearth of these cannabinoids and our body is not producing them, the switches cannot get turned on and off. And it's as if the second grade teacher is leaving the room and the kids start to act up and it is when these this particular set of kids if you will that you have just described when 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 it's these kids that stop working in the brain the ones that cause parkinson's symptoms this is why we want to treat Parkinson's with cannabis because we want to give the body the the um, uh, communication tools to turn these switches on and off and essentially uh, act like the second grade teacher in the room. How do you oh, buy? I, do, you, do you like that? Do you buy that?
1: Yeah, I All, really, right. All right, I think it. I mean, like it, it makes a lot of sense. Is it? This is how a lot of researchers look at finding compounds to treat conditions. What's wrong with the cells? what can we do to make the cells do what they normally do? And like, this is true of Parkinson's, you know, the primary treatment for Parkinson's disease is uh, levodopa, which is a precursor to dopamine. And so basically researchers were like, okay, people aren't producing enough dopamine. They get these symptoms that are related to Parkinson's disease. This medicine can help brains produce more dopamine and it's very similar with cannabinoids you know if the endocannabinoid system is not functioning property properly not producing endocannabinoids or receptors how do you make it do that will you introduce a compound that interacts directly with it and what's interesting about thc which is uh the primary plant compound that interacts with cb one and cb2 the sort of best known receptors in the endocannabinoid system is it could actually jumpstart the endocannabinoid system if it is underperforming. Um, This was a theory put forward by Dr. McPartland and Guy, I don't know, five years ago, which is sort of like there might be a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency that's responsible for a number of conditions and taking THC could sort of snap everything into place. On the other side of it, Chronic use of THC downregulates the CB1 receptor, um, and which doesn't really seem to be much of an issue for chronic cannabis users. Um, and, and this is completely theoretical at this point, so please, this is just from me reading research, everyone listening. If, if Parkinson's disease in its later stages is characterized by an overproduction of CB1 receptors, perhaps... Finding a way to downregulate those receptors could help to restore some balance. I don't know.
0: Hmm, that, that's There's that's a lot of- that's an interesting and novel approach. I have not heard, but that's a, that's an interesting yeah. idea. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I think it would be worth teasing out here a little bit is um, so far you and I have been talking kind of generally about this basket of cannabinoids that we're going to uh, take from the cannabis plant and 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 somehow these cannabinoids support this endocannabinoid system but i think it's important to to make sure people understand that these these various cannabinoids each have their own job which is one of the reasons why it's so important to take whole plant preparations you don't you know you don't want to just take um, a cannabinoid isolate like pure CBD crystal or something like that because that that is not uh, treating the whole endocannabinoid system which is what our goal is and and you'll you'll know these the specifics on these better than me but to, to get us going on it for example uh, THC is an anti-inflammatory c CBD increases the number of a, a signaling molecules to um, to turn on and off these, these switches. Um, uh, uh, CBG, you know, it, while it decreases the experience of neuromuscular pain, it also offers patients the confidence to feel that they can overcome the stresses that their body's under. So, you know, each one of these cannabinoids, you know, e- e- Taking one on its own Mm. doesn't get us where we want to go. It's the fact that all of these different cannabinoids, including the ones that we have not even figured out exist yet— these different cannabinoids, when they work together in concert, they are rehabbing our our body's basic symptoms, uh, systems, bringing them into homeostasis, which, by definition, will be decreasing uh, the underlying uh, uh, lack of dopamine um, that that we call Parkinson's.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's really important. It's really interesting to look at. bringing this back to Parkinson's too, because we're still really figuring out what causes Parkinson's disease. We're also still figuring out what we can do to make it better. And so sometimes it's like you have to do three things at once to make the symptoms of Parkinson's disease decrease. A good example of that is um, in a rodent model, they had uh, a CB1 antagonist, so something that blocked the effects of CB1. And they also had a, a FA inhibitor. So they had a compound that basically made anandamide, uh, the endocannabinoid that our body produces, uh, stay around for longer. So they blocked CB1, made anandamide stick, stick around longer, and saw a decrease in symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease in rodents. And it's like, you know, you're looking at. At least three different targets in that model uh p bar gamma cb1 uh, and then the phi inhibition and it was only when all of those things were together that you saw the results you know so it's just combining these things can be very very powerful and it's not what western medicine is used to doing And on top of it, each one of those compounds have many molecular targets in the body. It's not just THC will do this one thing because it interacts here. It's like THC does lots of things because it interacts everywhere. So does CBD.
0: Yeah, it's (laughs) exciting, but it also really pisses off a lot of patients and their families when you're trying to explain, right? Because um, Western medicine is so reductionist. People want to hear that, you know, the disease is caused by A and we take B, which undoes A. End of story. Put it in a pill you know? And, and and really not only is that not really how nature or our bodies work, it is definitely not how cannabis medicine works. And cannabis medicine is, is, is more about here is a broad range of, um, you know, naturally occurring chemical compounds that our body normally makes, but it's not making. And so we're going to get it from a plant. And once we put them in our body, you know dozens of little chemical reactions happen which when you put them together becomes a melody that decreases the experience of disease and potentially the disease itself and and most people do n- not want to hear that kind of an explanation
1: Totally. Well, and I mean, we've all been trained to not accept that sort of explanation. We're looking for like, you know, how often have you worked with someone who's like, oh, I'm having trouble sleeping, but I don't want to feel high and I don't want to feel altered. And like, you know, what's good for sleeping? What's good for pain? And it's kind of like, well, let's walk you through like you can't really tease apart symptom management. By, based on cannabinoids alone. Like you're not necessarily going to get the same pain relieving qualities from CBD as you do from THC. And if you take THC, it could be really good for pain, but you might feel high. Like it's, it's not this, uh, completely custom formed pharmaceutical. So it's, uh, it's a, plant it's a plant that produces a lot of really interesting compounds uh and it does a lot of things all at once and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad like parkin in parkinson's so much of the research about thc has been incredibly contradictory because cb1 while it's apparent that it plays a role activating it has had like Very contradictory results. So activating CB1 can cause an increase in symptoms or a decrease in symptoms, sort of depending on the model. Blocking CB1, same thing. It's obvious that manipulating CB1 has an impact on this disease, but we're not entirely sure what, and it has an impact on both the disease and the side effects of the most common medication. So tremors are... A hallmark of Parkinson's disease. And they're also a hallmark of the side effect of levodopa, which is, you know, this shaking, involuntary muscle movement that develops in like 30 to 50% of people who take this medication. And so CB1 activation seems to help the shaking associated with taking levodopa, but it might not help the shaking associated with the disease itself. So it gets really complicated.
0: It's really hard, too, when it's usually not the patient. It's usually somebody in the patient's family who will um, send me an article, um, usually not a scientific paper, but just some article that they saw on the Internet talking about how uh, THC in, you know, lab rat studies sometimes can increase... um, some of the markers for Parkinson's and they're all like, my family member should absolutely not be taking something that increases <laughs> the markers. And at the same right. time you say, you know, you got to tell them, and you're like, okay, you are myopically looking at this one study, which we don't really understand its meaning yet. And it wasn't done in humans, but perhaps that study is going to be outweighed by the fact that, that, you know, Cannabinoids cause neurogenesis and the creation Mm -hmm. of more dopamine um, creating neurons, and the the anti inflammatory aspects of THC makes the body feel better, and the muscle relaxation aspects of it decrease the tremors, and the CBG increases the patient's confidence and decreases the neuromuscular pain. So you're like you're like okay, you know, plant medicines are complex, and you really need to look at. At how you are going to treat the human in a much more broad, holistic way, and I always feel bad for for these families because um, this is not the best time of their life to be learning no. detailed medicine that they're totally unfamiliar with, and right. and so you gotta you gotta walk them through this stuff very slowly and lovingly so that they can feel empowered to make decisions for themselves or their family members at the same time um, that they are being incredibly frustrated. Yep,
1: exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's totally understandable that they're frustrated. They want an easy solution. And it this isn't an easy solution. It's a really interesting one. It could be a very powerful one, but it's definitely not easy and it's not straightforward. And it's it is asking a lot to to sort of introduce people to this concept that it it's going to take time to figure out whether or not something works or not. And in general, I mean, in the human studies that have been conducted on THC and CBD and people with Parkinson's there, it's by and large, there've been no worsening of symptoms, you know, at worst, usually it's like nothing happens. So if that's the worst case scenario, why not try it? Because the best case scenario can be incredible. It could help cease some of the involuntary muscle movements. It could make people happier. I mean, you know, quality of life is huge. And that's a stunning effect of cannabinoid therapy sort of across the board. Even if people don't observe any sort of physical manifestations of cannabis therapy, they feel better. And that's really important.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. And I also like your point that, you know, nothing may happen at all but you're really only risking good. You know, most of the time, well, not most of the time, every Parkinson's patient that I've ever, you know, become familiar with and taught a dosing protocol to, it they fall into one of three categories. Either category 1 um for whatever reason it doesn't seem to have any effect. And they're frustrated by that and and that sucks, but you know, that's the that's the nature of the beast. So sometimes some that's basket 1, basket 2 are people who um, are able to relieve their daily symptoms to some degree, and maybe all the way, which can be like a huge win, but the the Parkinson's continues to progress over time, right. and and you know they're not able to turn the tide on the Parkinson's, and then there's the third category. Um, which is always delightful to run into, where they they're very responsive to cannabinopathic medicine. Uh, their their daily symptoms decrease right away. And uh, th- their treatment of the endocannabinoid system causes their body to start creating more neurons that create dopamine on on mm-hmm. the body's own. And then the, the, the body's endocannabinoid system fires up, and the Parkinson's rolls back, and their their test numbers become better. and mm-hmm. and, and everybody is astonished for the miracle cure. And, you know, and of course, we hope that everybody's in that category. But really, I I haven't come across a patient yet who experimented with cannabis, and it made them worse, except for, it's, it's worth mentioning, people who start taking THC without following a specific dosing protocol can accidentally over-medicate themselves and get more high than they're comfortable with. And yeah. that and that can be, you know, an hour or two of, of um, displeasure or, you know, more of, often than not, people who are the age that people generally get Parkinson's, I find that those people more go to sleep than... Uh, mm-hmm. Then have a paranoid experience, but you know it is—it is, it, well, it's, it's it is something worth balance,
1: mentioning. Like because you know once you once you're high, one of the classic hallmarks of you know cannabis intoxication is a loss of the ability to balance in the same way. And since people with Parkinson's already have are sort of compromised in their ability to balance, it, that can be definitely. I've I've experienced patients who got really scared because they lost their balance when they were high, um, and so that's like. Yeah. Totally understandable. But again, it has to do with, you know, that's too much, you know, you could take less, definitely. And I've run into actually, actually many Parkinson's patients who are very sensitive to THC. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could have to do with the expression of CB1 in their uh, cerebrospinal fluid. They just have more targets for that THC to hit. And so maybe they're getting high faster.
0: It's funny. I had, a, uh, I had one patient that I was working with, and that was her primary complaint, was that when she would take um, some purple flower THC in the evening before bed as a tincture um, so that she could get a good night's sleep. Um, and then, and then, you know, maybe two, two and a half hours, she would normally get up to use the restroom and the THC was in her body and, and she felt a little unstable going to the restroom. And I, and I told her, I said, I said, you know, that, that is a thing for some people. And so, you know, let's decrease your dosage. And she's like, uh, uh, and I said, oh, (laughs) And, and she said, I just put a, um, <clears throat> like a bar on the wall and I, and I and like a railing and she said I added a railing between uh, my bed and the bathroom and I hold on to that she says because it's so important for her to take THC at night at that dosage so that she wakes up in the morning hungry. And I'm all like, my Mm -hmm. gosh, see, this is this is the next this is next level patient self care where they have learned how the cannabis medicine works for them uniquely. And and she was causing, you know, she was getting individualized medicine after she learned how to properly use the tincture for her and and people just need to be patient through those first couple weeks of learning how the how to use the medicine best for you. And then you can mm-hmm. take the advice from, you know, your doctor or somebody like you or I and adapt it for you. And now you've got like best practices for you. And right. that, that is the, you know, gold standard for using cannabis. Totally.
1: And it is, I mean, it's it's a lot of experimentation and it can take a little bit of time. And, you know, having patients can really turn out well
0: yes all right so before we go to commercial i want to talk about um the the use of cannabis um to relieve short-term symptoms and we've already touched on a bunch of this but you know generally up to the now we've been talking about you know fighting parkinson's as the disease to to try to get rid of it you know to get rid of the underlying uh lack of dopamine issues um but you know for many folks, the initial cessation or lessening of physical symptoms that gives them their first confirmation of hope in cannabis. Is just taking a little bit that a friend gives them, and you know many of us have seen the the internet video of a parkinson 's patient with significant tremors being given just a tiny bit of cannabis oil on their tongue, and then like within four or five minutes, those tremors are gone, and they're chatting, and you know their friends they're they're crying and it's like powerful you know videos yeah and and, and you know there's there's plenty of these um on YouTube that people can check out. Seeing that happen in person with a patient, it really is breathtaking. And so let's talk about like the short term. What symptoms have you seen abated with cannabis in the short term? And when I say short term, I mean like you take some tincture, you know, consistently, let's say every three or four hours and the symptoms go away, you know, to some degree within a day and then more so day two. So very, very swift response.
1: Totally. Tremors, pain, sleeplessness, uh, appetite, all of those things I've seen return in Parkinson's patients. And it it really improves their quality of life.
0: Not only that, when when patients are eating properly because they've got their hunger back and they're getting a proper night's sleep... Um, it's helping the underlying systemic issues that are going on for yep. them because none of us are going to thrive with crappy food and crappy sleep. Um, and also the quality of life shoots up oh, remarkably. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: Yeah. The anxiety and depression is such a big issue for everyone who lives with chronic disease. And so if you can manage that with cannabis, it's huge.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So when we get back from the commercial, we're going to get right down to specific uh, cannabis dosing protocols and methods. But right now we're going to take our second short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire and my guest today is cannabis researcher and educator Zoe Sigmund. Growing cannabis in greenhouses is taking over the cannabis industry. An efficient and effective blend of sunshine-grown terpene profiles and the controlled environment of indoor, greenhouses can be the best of both worlds. For many greenhouse operators, though, building their greenhouse before gaining insight into how cannabis greenhouses differ from ornamental crops can be the start of a world of hurt. Eric Branstad and his team at Greenhouse Advisory Group have the experience and technical know-how to help you avoid these pitfalls. Eric Brandstad has been helping cannabis growers find locations, design, build, and equip their greenhouses for over a decade, first starting in Northern California, but expanding over the last five years to helping clients throughout the world. He has an impeccable reputation for both depth of knowledge and kindness in communication. You can hear Eric explain some of the challenges facing cannabis greenhouses and how to overcome them in episode number 41 of the Shaping Fire podcast. No matter where I go in the country, good people with smart backgrounds still are making the mistake of building without knowing cannabis, and it causes them to burn through capital and time fast. Everyone has their own failure point. For some, it is improper ventilation planning. For others, it is surface temperatures of the building or the plant's leaves or both. Some folks that build their greenhouse from scratch make really basic errors like placement of the greenhouse on the property or not understanding the natural environment where the greenhouse sits. Some have even built a decent greenhouse, but are inefficient in their deployment of light deprivation techniques and never really hit their target yields. It's great when you learn from your mistakes, but it's even better when you learn from the mistakes of others. When you bring on Greenhouse Advisory Group, you will learn from the mistakes of their many clients and you'll take advantage of the best practices developed by Eric Brandstad over his years of working with clients just like you. From location development to choosing a builder and tricking out your new greenhouse or retrofitting or rescuing your failing greenhouse, Eric will help you through it. Visit GreenhouseAdvisoryGroup.com to learn more and connect with Eric and his team. That's Greenhouse Advisory Group. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it, and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend blunt branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals in Humboldt at Moontimemedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter. Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money.
2: Cannabis is fun medicine, and we love to celebrate it. Cannabis connects people and creates opportunities for new friendships. At the Toke Shop, we create custom cannabis-themed jewelry, money clips, rolling trays, and home furnishings that you love. And they also make great gifts, too. I'm Ashley Villafranca, owner of the Toke Shop. I came to cannabis as a patient seeking an alternative to the pharmaceuticals being pushed at me for chronic pain and fibromyalgia. I realized that not only was cannabis a huge help in controlling my symptoms, but I found cannabis to be wonderfully social too. Cannabis makes friends. So I took my love of jewelry design and blended it with my newfound passion for cannabis and began handcrafting bracelets, earrings, and friendship necklaces, and then expanded to money clips, rolling trays, and other home furnishings, all made in sterling silver, 14 karat gold, and aluminum, so there's something for everyone's budget. I consider it all to be new age cannabis fashion and cannabis couture. I invite you to stop by my website at thetokeshop.co. At thetokeshop.co, you'll find a wide array of attractive and fun cannabis items starting at only 10 bucks. And if you're fancy, there are very fine luxury pieces as well. And I'm always happy to do custom orders with your name or a particular theme. Come check out my array of items hand stamped with terpenes, cannabinoids, and other cannabis themes. That's the Thanks.
0: Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis researcher and educator Zoe Sigman. So here we are at the part of the show that a lot of people have been waiting for, I am sure. We are going to go through um, specific dosing protocols uh, to get you started with using cannabis to help uh, treat your Parkinson's disease. You know, historically, Parkinson's patients have been recommended to start with a air quotes two to one of 10 milligrams of CBD and 5 milligrams of THC every three to four hours, which is about the amount of time that the cannabinoids stay active in the bloodstream. Um, While a reasonable place to start, even this basic dosage protocol, though, has definitely has room for customization, Uh, especially if the patient has never tried cannabis before. I wouldn't want to start them out at five milligrams. So, Zoe, when you are consulting a new patient, where do you like to suggest that they start with their cannabis dosing?
1: Yeah, I generally suggest that they start lower than five milligrams. So two and a half milligrams is a is a pretty good place to start even then I have had people with Parkinson's disease say that that was pretty significantly altering. And so, if people are nervous about the feeling of being high, start with one milligram of THC. I'd still say at least ten milligrams of CBD. You can basically take as much CBD as you're comfortable with taking. Um, There's a lot of information about CBD for Parkinson's patients, clinical studies and observations um, that show dosage dosages really up to 600 milligrams of CBD have been shown to have benefit in various uh, aspects of the disease. As far as the THC is concerned, we really want to avoid people feeling uncomfortable. And so two and a half milligrams, one milligram if you're really nervous. The first time you take cannabis medicine, we really hope that you don't feel anything because that means you can increase your dose.
0: (laughs) And it also means that they, uh, you know... There are very, very rare people. Um, I have had cannabis researchers suggest to me that maybe it's one in 10,000 people who have a severe reaction to THC, where they'll take a very small amount of it, you know, of two and a half milligrams, and they will have an outside response to it and get really high for a few hours. And... It is is incredibly rare, and I've only come across one person in all of my years talking with cannabis patients who is that sensitive. But if if it's you, or if it's a family member, or if you're a caregiver, you don't want to be the one that finds that rare patient. And so, um, if if the if the patient does not have an experience with THC, starting at uh, incredibly small what what regular cannabis patients would consider laughable starting with those laughable amounts really is the best way to go and and we'll talk more about method later but this is one of the reasons why i really like uh uh, tinctures for patients because if if you're if you're smoking you can't control your dosage at all and if you're taking a concentrated oil it's really hard to get low doses and if you're taking capsules, you're stuck with whatever's in that capsule. But if you are taking a tincture, you can take a full dropper, you can take a half a dropper, or you can just take three little drops, mm-hmm. um, whatever is convenient for you. And that is how we would get to, as you suggested, a 2.5 milligram uh, THC dosage, or if the person hasn't had any at all, um, maybe, maybe just give them, you know, uh, t- 10 drops, which is going to make, per- you know, you'd have to do the math ba- based on what's on the bottle, right. what it says on the bottle, right? But let's just say that 10 drops is going to be one milligram, perhaps. Well, let's, let's start there because you can always increase your dosage. Once it's in your body, it's much harder coming back. And so right, exactly doing a healthy self-titration of, of moving up until you find your sweet spot is um, is really a way to go. So so Zoe, how, how do you recommend people find their sweet spot and how do they know when they've hit their sweet spot of the right amount of THC to take?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it it varies from person to person. I think that a really good metric that I've used for a long time is basically you want to feel Relief of your symptoms without any unwanted side effects. So, that could mean different things for different people. For some people, you know, maybe you're looking for a lessening of pain, but you don't want to feel high. And so, you would continue to slowly titrate up to the place where maybe you've been feeling pain relief in some way for a little bit of time. And then finally, you hit a dose where you're like, "Oop, I feel high. So move back down. So it's always a really good idea to keep track of exactly how much of any cannabis medicine you're taking and then sort of recording what your experiences are on that medication or at that dosage level so that if you hit a point at which you're uncomfortable, you can back it down to the last step.
0: And, and it's good to point out that it isn't like if you add one more drop, you go from not feeling it to being like super stoned, right? You know, there's, there's a progression of not feeling anything, not feeling anything. Maybe you had a couple sips of wine amount and then maybe you had a glass amount and then, oh, maybe it would, maybe you actually had a martini intoxication and then, oh, maybe now you're kind of slapping at light switches or grasping at the doorknob and then you're really high, right? You know, like, so, so, so. there's this range that so long as you start on the low end, you can tiptoe your way up. And and what I have found is that there are there are many many Parkinson's patients who tell me that they don't want to feel high and they're afraid of feeling high, and so they'll titrate in one milligram, two milligram, three milligram, and then somewhere around four milligram when they start to actually feel anything at all, they're all like oh. I really like the warm sensation that I get from it, and then at five you know or six they're all like they're like, oh you know i ha- I really enjoy this. it really makes my t v much more interesting. We had laughs last night, right? right, and like you know, and generally speaking, unless somebody is um you know very familiar with cannabis medicine, there really isn't any reason for a novice to really go much beyond five or six milligrams. Unless they are experienced, and unless there is um, either they've got some kind of a resistance that they've built up over time, or if they're dealing with a, compa- a, a significant pain component and they want right. to take a lot more THC to deal with that, but exactly. but you know if you're if you're just getting your legs under you and learning about using cannabis for your Parkinson's, you know generally speaking, you don't really have much business going above five until you know what you're doing because anywhere right. anywhere above five, you could have a surprised. Over medication experience, once you're a an established cannabis patient, though, you know pretty much anything under ten is going to be pretty safe. And then and then yeah, you, you, it, you, it, yeah, it's
1: okay to play with even more than that too. It's it's absolutely sort of what you feel and if it's effective. And you know people do build tolerance to THC, and so if you're using it every day, you might need to increase your dose. And if you go above ten, that's that's fine. It's not scary. It just depends on your body and what you need.
0: Yeah, I think that's the kicker, right? It's it's not scary so long as you have built up the experience to get to that point. I mean, there's, there's plenty right. of right. cannabis patients that are taking 100 milligrams of THC in an edible at once. But, you know, it's, it's not right. their first time taking cannabis, right? These are right. No. These, these are patients that have been, uh, that they have learned how cannabis works with their body and they learned how to do it and when to do it. And they're very experienced. But But for the vast majority of people who are coming to cannabis, um, everything, all of our work on THC is going to be done under five milligrams, and you know, generally speaking, uh, as much CB whole plant CBD as you can afford. And it's, and yeah, it's, and it's, a, yeah. it's a shame that it has to be that way because you know, the cheap stuff, the, the affordable CBD is, is very often, um, questionably made isolate from other countries and such, um, which are not going to give you. The benefits of entourage effect and and really working with the whole system of the body, um, the the whole plant preparations they're more arduous to make and you know their prices generally reflect that. Um, but but
1: thankfully they seem to be more effective or as effective at lower doses as CBD isolates at higher doses, and so you can play around. I mean. I think that it is beneficial for almost everyone to take a pretty large amount of CBD at some point in their life, as long as you're not on medications that stress your liver, um, and see what it's like. And then sort of start to understand what different amounts of CBD can give you as far as benefits. And it's, you know, in Parkinson's patients, there's been a ton of human observations about, like, CBD improving quality of life, spasms, sleep quality, like all of these issues. And it's, like, you, it's anywhere from 40 milligrams per day up to 600 milligrams per day. And usually, like, a lot of the studies are at around 150 milligrams, which is kind of a lot when you're thinking about how CBD is usually sold, how much CBD is usually in a tincture bottle. But it's just to say, like, if you can afford it, if you can find like a high-quality preparation, go for it.
0: And and also, it's unfortunate too because so many of the products on the shelves in licensed stores, they will um, they will make a an extraction of a THC plant, and then they will spike it with CBD isolate so that right. they can get like huge CBD numbers but it's not really a whole CBD plant. And so, so often people, you know, I will often recommend that a you know, it, it, taking taking the cost off the table for a minute, if they can afford it, go ahead and start with their 2.5 milligrams of THC, uh, but plan on five milligrams a dosage to be your target, and then if you can take 10 to 20 milligrams of whole plant CBD with that, um, mm-hmm. three to four times a day, so that you end up with you know between 60 and 100 milligrams of whole plant CBD and you know 15 to 20 milligrams of thc spread out over the whole day um you're going to very likely see a significant benefit right because totally. you're you're giving you're giving a healthy dose consistently throughout the day and you are rebuilding your endocannabinoid system and so just because some of the studies that we've seen um are you know 200 milligrams and up in day Many of these studies are still being done on rats, and mm-hmm. the the dosing does not always... Well, actually, Go in ahead. the
1: CBD studies in Parkinson's, it's in humans. That's oh, what's well, that's really good. impressive about Parkinson's disease. Like, there's a bunch of preclinical stuff in rats, like really interesting stuff with CBD, but the the dosages I was talking about, those are all based on humans.
0: All right, so then my follow-up to that would have been, since since you're more familiar with these studies, are they always using whole plant, or are they using isolate?
1: Ah. Uh, yeah, excellent question. Uh, that information is almost never provided.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's probably isolate. Yeah, and so so it's it's interesting, you know. People people will often get um, you know poor or no results on a few hundred milligrams of CBD isolate, right. but you give that same patient. 25 milligrams of whole plant and oh my gosh, suddenly it works because the body knows how to deal with that instead of yeah. just well, giving it an also isolate.
1: Quality questions. I think I feel like in CBD isolate, in the world of CBD isolate, you're a little bit more susceptible to fraud, honestly, you know, people just mislabeling what's in the bottle and misrepresenting what's in the bottle. And you do need to be careful about who you buy your products from for that reason. No one's regulating this. And so you need to trust the person who makes the oil, the person who grows the flour, the flour that goes into the oil. Um, it's, a, it's a bit more of an involved process than other medications, definitely.
0: And, and another place that patients get super frustrated, right? Yeah. Because um, you know, there's so many places for, for things to go wrong on the path from the plant being in the ground to being in your hands at home um, you know there's there's potential pesticides that are being used at the grower step and then you've got you know some extraction methods are better than other. like I'm a big fan of ethanol extraction because it really pulls out the whole plant but if you can't get ethanol you know I would probably go and, and try some you know CO2 extraction though that is not my personal preference I'd always go to the ethanol first but then you can come all the way down to people using distillates and isolates and and spiking a THC cultivar. And, mm-hmm. and so most patients are not going to be sophisticated enough to be able to unravel that. And so then they go right. to a store and they ask a bud tender and there are some epic bud tenders who, you know, it's more than a job for them. They are doing their research at home and they're going to conventions and they're learning stuff, but that is the minority. And very often than not, the bud tender will give you what they have a lot of in stock or what other people tend to buy. Neither of those are based on medical efficacy, really.
1: Right. Right. Which is, it's just, it's a problem. It's, one of the main problems of cannabis medicine you know getting a consistent product that you can trust contains what you think it contains and making sure that that product works for you
0: so i hit on it a little bit earlier about the different methods and it's so common Mm -hmm. for me to come across patients who are, are first trying to get familiar with cannabis medicine and so somebody gives them some joints to smoke and and certainly there are um you know, some ailments that smoking is very appropriate. Um, You know, depression, glaucoma, uh, pain, loss of appetite, you know, these these types of things, you know, certainly, um, you know, smoking a joint will work. But, But for Parkinson's, we really want to be in more control of the dosing and being able to fine tune it and know exactly how much we took and write it in our patient journal uh, so that we can control our doses better over time. So when, when folks are asking you uh, what your preferred methods are for actually ingesting it, what do you like to tell them?
1: Uh, usually sublingually. So, sublingual I- administration involves holding a tincture uh, or spray under your tongue for a minute to allow some of the active compounds, in this case cannabinoids, to pass through into your bloodstream more readily. Um, this is in contrast to just swallowing a tincture, which then needs to pass through your entire digestive system first, and you actually lose a lot of the. Um, potency of the cannabinoids while it's passing through your digestive system and so uh, the sublingual administration allows for a faster onset and maybe a little bit more better absorption of the cannabinoids. Um, I have also, and this is a bit controversial, but especially with people who are very concerned about cannabis use, I have suggested maybe starting or trying um, a transdermal patch first Transnormal patches have a lot of issues in terms of consistency. People's skin are different thicknesses. It's difficult to tell really how bioavailable the compounds are. But uh, the benefit mm-hmm. is you can put it on and feel the effects really quickly within 15 minutes. And then if you don't like the effects, you can take it off. And then the, the effects will go away just as quickly. And so it's sort of a good way to see if if this is something that works for you. They are very expensive, so not like the best... Maybe long term solution, which is where you can start to move into the land of uh, sublingual administration.
0: And I'm still looking for a transdermal patch that I really like. What's in it too, because yeah. you know transdermal preparation—that is a lot of heavy processing of the cannabinoids, and oh, totally. and, and and to get to that point, we're often. Um, you know, we're often way beyond whole plant. We're 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 into yeah. some kind of overprocessed version. Which at that point, if somebody's going to go transdermal, I actually like taking um, cannabis oil and mix it with a little bit of hand lotion and actually using it as a topical, and letting it soak mm-hmm. through the skin rather than going transdermal. But but I think that I don't think that the transdermal uh, technology has come into its own yet. I still think that as as more investment money comes into the cannabis world and we get more crossover for the scientists that that you know are really good at making them, we're going to see more of them come to the market. And who knows? That transdermal may actually already exist in you know one of the medical states, and I just haven't come across that product yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the transdermal technology has advanced a lot in the past several years and really outside of cannabis. Um, it's a very interesting administration method for very small molecules like nicotine or estrogen for nicotine patches or birth control patches, um, which is where this sort of technology really evolved. And so I have seen you know, promising suggestions for the transdermal technologies. Um, But yeah, you're right. Like, we still have a lot to learn as far as that administration method. And tinctures just really are very easy as far as dosage control, which is awesome. That said, um, Parkinson's is one of the diseases where maybe because of the length of time that cannabis has been used to treat Parkinson's, there have been some studies that have shown benefits from smoked cannabis, especially as far as uh, mood and fatigue and pain. And so if you're looking, if those are the symptoms that you're really looking to help mitigate in Parkinson's disease, like smoking could be a really good option for you if you're open to it.
0: Actually, that's a really good point to make too, because when I was kind of dissuading from the smoking aspect. I was thinking to get the cannabinoids unchanged into the body where it can Mm. cause neurogenesis of these uh, uh, dopamine-creating neurons, right? And so for specifically that, sure, a sublingual tincture or oil is going to be optimum. But you're right. The symptoms that come with Parkinson's can very well be treated um, with a joint and especially the quality of life aspect. I yeah. I know a lot of Parkinson's patients that they have found that their favorite part of their day is sitting on their porch and smoking a joint and just feeling not crappy for a while.
1: Right. Totally. It's really important. I think another thing to note about anything that you ingest through your mouth is if you take your cannabinoid medication with fat something fatty a fatty meal a fatty snack um your body will absorb those cannabinoids like significantly better like 2 to 3 times better and so it's always worth noting that if you are taking a tincture or an edible eat a spoonful of peanut butter or ice cream or an avocado or whatever to help really help your body absorb
0: those cannabinoids. And this is not an excuse to eat cracky calories either, right? I mean, like we're talking about a very small amount of fat to the point that, you know, a lot of good capsules are made with a little bit of oil and a little bit of coconut as the fat in a capsule, and that's it. So yep. this is this is not your, ex- you know, this is not the reason to take a little bit of cannabinoids and then a pint of Ben and Jerry's, right? Right, that's, totally. That's, that's <laughs> not yeah, all saying here yeah
1: no yeah but if that's how you want your fat maybe a couple
0: spoonfuls yeah there you go so um you know another thing i think we should uh hit on before we wrap up our conversation is that you know while you and i have both seen huge successes for parkinson's patients using cannabis and um the vast majority of patients that i've come across who have you who have used cannabis have gotten some good results to the point that that parkinson's is kind of low hanging fruit for cannabis it's not it's 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 one of the more easily accessible and treatable diseases with cannabis um, it doesn't work for everybody and and and, and and it's important to be clear about that that um, sometimes Folks will take cannabis and they just won't see the changes that they want. And they'll be like, I don't know why, but it doesn't work for me. And and I don't have an explanation why it doesn't work for everybody. Um, but to know that that is a possibility and sometimes you also have to play around with the dosage. And sometimes it's weird. Sometimes – I I suggest that people like after after they've tried for a few weeks and they're like it's just not working for me. I'm like, well, put put the rest of the cannabis medicine you have aside and like just take a break for a few weeks and then come back to it and approach it again and sometimes it works the second time and sometimes it doesn't. But um I think that it's just I think it's important for people to know that if they are going to give this a try, um there are people that that they don't get the benefit that they are looking for. While there are people who get incredible benefits, so be gentle with yourself um, yeah. and 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 take notes in your journal so you are sure you're taking enough. Because honestly, when people say they're not that the cannabis did not help their Parkinson's, it's it's almost always the fact that they misunderstood the dosage and they're taking such a small amount um, that that it wouldn't help anybody.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Totally. I mean, and I think a big an important part of the jobs that both you and I do at helping patients is modulating expectations and trying to help people approach cannabis medicine Uh, as realistically as possible. And it is really important. I, I mean, many of the Parkinson's patients that I've worked with have not had benefit from cannabis therapy, and that's okay. And they were okay with it. And part of the reason they were okay with it was, you know, walking into it, knowing that it doesn't work for everyone. And there's a bunch of things that you can try, and it's okay if it doesn't, you know, it might. And that's where it's like modulate expectations and keep hope high, you know?
0: and 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 usually the by the time the people get to cannabis they've already tried everything else anyway everything. you know yeah. and you know certainly there are some you know more nature medicine type folks who will start with cannabis and you know those are those are our kind of people but but that's that's not usually the case normally they've gone through all the pharma first and it either has got really bad side effects or it doesn't work for them and they're like okay what do you got what do you hippies got you know and 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 so we, we we educate them and and hopefully they find some advantage there but even people who don't find that the cannabis medicine is actually helping reverse or roll back their Parkinson's at the root core, um, their quality of lives is are almost yeah. always increased just because Taking a little bit of cannabis and the muscle relaxation aspects of it, and getting your your um, you know getting the munchies, getting your appetite back, and being a little stoned um, yeah. for the vast majority of patients, that in and of itself makes life better.
1: Totally, and it has been in some of the human studies on Parkinson's disease. Both THC and CBD have helped people get off of pharmaceutical painkillers, which is another huge benefit. Like, if it's not helping with Parkinson's directly, you know, helping you get off of opiates, which might not make you feel very good. I mean, like, I have only taken opiates once and it made me puke for days, you know, and it's like, but if that's your only option for pain relief, having another option is really nice. And so it's like, there's all these things to take into consideration when you're considering whether or not cannabis medicine is effective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's wrap this up because, um, uh, you know, patients and families and educators who are still with us in the show, um, they are probably just lit with interest at this point and, and they're probably going to want to take this and learn more. So, um, so before I ask you for where you would recommend people to go, mm-hmm. I wanna start by recommending your video um, that is on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash shangolos. Um, you just gave a great talk at Vimea on Vashon Island about getting to know your endocannabinoid system. And um, it's great, You you expand for about an hour what we did in about 10 minutes today. And uh, not only is it is it playful and and, you know, you're a humorous person, but also you use, you know, Star Wars metaphors to explain the endocannabinoid system. And so um, it makes it pretty delightful. So 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 folks can check that out on on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel. Where else do you like to send uh, people Zoe to learn more?
1: Yeah. um, Project CBD, which is the nonprofit I worked for for a year and a half. Um, Before I worked there, I recommended people go there. And now after I work there, I recommend people go there. I think that's an incredible resource um, and will continue to be so. And I think that as far as putting out information that's accessible to people who are not necessarily scientists, it's still one of the best.
0: I, I'm going to go ahead and double down on on your suggestion of projectcbd.org, which my listeners are certainly familiar with, because it is the it's the only web resource that I plug uh, consistently. Because as far as I'm concerned, it is it is the only you know always trustworthy source for information that's been vetted. Plus you can get both kinds of articles. You can get articles that translate cannabis medicine and research into, you know, regular person vocabulary. But also, there's a section on the site called conditions that you can click on. Uh, I think there's like 50 different conditions there, including um, Parkinson's. And when you click on it, you will get links to all of the original scientific research on uh, pubmed.gov. So if you the kind of person where you know an article is not going to give you the level of specificity that you need to make health decisions for you and your family going to the projectcbd.org site under conditions and clicking parkinson's and getting access to the science firsthand oh you'll feel so much more satisfied with the with the path that you take knowing that you have read the science yourself firsthand
1: oh yeah it's wonderful and i mean like if people really want to get into it pull up PubMed (laughs) and search Parkinson's and cannabis. And PubMed is a a database that collates all of the scientific research that's being done. I'm pretty sure on everything. um, But if you open it and and search for a specific specific condition and cannabis, there's thousands of articles and it could be a really useful resource
0: fantastic so Zoe thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to hang out for a little bit and to share your vast experience on this topic and and you know thank you for sharing your experience uh, working with patients directly because you know often there is a gap between the the scientific papers and how patients find relief and I appreciate you that you have got both bodies of information and your willingness to share it with us.
1: thank you so much. Thanks for having me on Shango.
0: If you want to find out more about Zoe and, 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 and keep up with her posts, you can find her on Instagram and that's at Zoe underscore Sigmund. So that's Z O E underscore S I G M A N. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolose.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango